0: Okay, let's start. Um, so people have read The Fall of Hyperion and The Great Odes. Um, let's look briefly at The Fall of Hyperion. What did you think of it as compared to Hyperion? Similarities, differences? Yeah, you were about to say. I liked it. You liked it, good. More than Hyperion, which you didn't like that much. Yeah. Uh huh. Okay. Nicely structured, um, because Keats or the narrator matters in it in a way that he's just barely present in Hyperion itself. In Hyperion, the whoever's telling the story will occasionally say, "You know, um, we are not permitted to know," or "Or it seems to us," or whatever. But you don't get that really strong sense of a personal um, figure to whom this vision has appeared. Yeah. I liked Hyperion a lot more. Actually. Really? How come? I liked the sort of Paradise Lost book 2 structure Mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. I liked the speeches, and I also loved the end with Apollo and the sort of rebirth. Yeah. This, I thought, was just a very, very odd allegory. (laughs) Well, presumably, what he was going to do was find some way to get them to put them together. That is, what happened was he gave up on Hyperion. Um, at the beginning of 1819 <coughs> um, and then wrote some of the great odes that we've talked about um, and then decided to go back to Hyperion. And so what he and in going back to it, he frames it. He's rewriting the whole thing, but a whole lot of what he's rewriting, he's not rewriting. He's just cutting and pasting. So the question is, had he continued how much of the stuff that you like from Hyperion would have been in it, and I think a lot would have been. Although maybe um, he would have cut it down a bit. Yeah. Um, kind of reminded me of the Custom House that I have for him. Mm-hmm. Kind of the happening upon the story. Yeah. And that I think the reason I didn't like this so much was because I really don't like that concept. It's totally, oh, I found this story that I'm sort of a weird kind of prequel. Yeah i act, I believe that in that story Hawthorne actually mentions keats um it's a it, he's he's talking about what it was like to be in Rome, which is where Keats is buried and if i it's been forever since I read that but if I recall correctly, he actually mentions the Protestant cemetery and mentions keats um so it's it's an interesting um connection to make um but you don't have to like Hawthorne <laughs> to like Keats. Um, I think Hawthorne's a much harder sell, although I love Hawthorne. Um, he's a much harder sell than Keats. Um, was your hand going up? Um, no, I was actually just going to agree that it, it reminded me of the same thing. in the Really? And, like, Independently, or did you guys talk about this? No, I didn't. <laughs> wow. Um, or I guess just that general concept of like, happening upon the story. It just, like bothered me a little bit. Well, he does say it's a dream, Right. Um, it's a vision, and he doesn't know whether this vision is um, is the dream of a poet or of a fanatic. Um, what it would mean for it to be a dr- the dream of a fanatic is a little bit hard to say, but it might mean something like, not a fanatic as in um, a revolutionary um, or a political fanatic, but a fanatic as in a crazy person, someone who... Um, gets obsessed with something and um, in that obsession um, is unable to see the world um, fully or clearly or wholly and that's something that Keats really wants to do in a way, I mean, let's look at the very beginning to see why it's important to what he's thinking about in the Hyperion poems, that he frames it with this this uncertain opening fanatics have their dreams he begins wherewith they weave a paradise for a sect so that that would be a fanatic who tells you what paradise will be like you know that there will be the 77 <coughs> virgins or whatever uh, 72 virgins um, people know about that that yes is this a phrase of me? you know that it's a mistranslation actually of 72 raisins um Yeah, it actually turns out that, yeah, you'll go to paradise and you'll (coughs) be given fruit, um, and it'll be delicious. It'll be 72 raisins. But then that, like Demogorgon, there was some kind of mistranscription and mistranslation to a similar word um, in Arabic, which is virgins. Um, (coughs) So um, fanatics have their dreams wherewith they weave a paradise for a sect. The savage, too, from forth the loftiest fashion of his sleep guesses at heaven. So people dream of amazing places. This is kind of the opposite idea of dreaming from Shelley's. Shelley thinks that maybe in dreams you see the truth. Keats is worried that in dreams you see um, complete and crazy falsehood. Pity, these have not traced upon vellum or wild Indian leaf, the shadows of melodious utterance. So the um, the fanatics, um, the savages who've had these amazing dreams have not written them down. They haven't been poets, the shadows of melodious utterance. But bear of Laurel, Laurel of course being the what poets are crowned with thanks to Apollo, young Apollo. This is in a sense the first mention of Apollo in the poem. D- people know the story of Apollo and Daphne and Laurel. Um, so Apollo fell in love with Daphne Daphne, this is Abba tells this story Um, Daphne prayed to um, escape him and escape his unwanted ministrations and desires that is she didn't want to be raped and um, in order to escape she was turned into a laurel tree and after that Apollo made the laurel um, the sign of of um his poetic um, um, patronage. So that Petrarch crowned himself with laurel, was in love with Laura, or a woman he named Laura, because it means laurel. Um, it's a name derived from laurel, and crowned himself with laurel as the great poet. When we talk about po- the poet laureate, um, the reason the poet is laureate is that the poet is crowned with laurel. Um, but bear of laurel. The fanatics, the savages, live, dream, and die. For poesy alone can tell her dreams with the fine spell of words alone can save imagination from the sable charm and dumb enchantment. Sable, quick. All right. Um, from, that is the sable charm that will, that will um, cover everything with blackness and dumb enchantment that is being unable to speak. You can't read anything because it's all dark. You can't say anything because you're dumb. Who alive can say thou art no poet mayst not tell thy dreams. No one can stop a dreamer from telling his dreams since every man whose soul is not a clod hath visions and would speak if he had loved and been well nurtured in his mother tongue. Whether the dream now purpose to rehearse, be poets or fanatics, will be known when this warm scribe, my hand, is in the grave. So he's about to tell you his vision. And he says he doesn't know whether this is um, just wild, um, unpoetic word painting, or whether this is the work of a poet. And he says, it won't be known till he's dead. Um, Now we know it's the work of a poet we're doing it in class Um, but he the speaker doesn't know so the dream begins methought I stood where trees of every clime palm, myrtle, oak and sycamore and beech with plantain and spice blossoms made a screen in neighborhood of fountains by the noise soft showering in my ears and by the touch of scent not far from roses so what word what five syllable word that we've been talking about, would you apply to this? Synesthesia. All right, <laughs> yes. Synesthesia, yes. So, um, trees everywhere. And it must be near fountains, he thinks, because he feels the noise, soft showering in his ears. So, um it's not quite that he hears the noise, although that's what he's saying. But what he hears is the feeling of the showering of noise into his ears, therefore the noise of waters. And by the touch of scent, he thinks, um, he's not far from roses. Um, so again, what's the crucial word in the phrase touch of scent? How could this be easier? What's the crucial word in the word touch? Just trying to make it easy. Touch, yes. The touch of scent. Not the hint of scent, not the smell of scent, not whatever, but the touch of scent. Again, do you f- if you're feeling how Keatsian that is, um, if if um, Keats's touch is something you can taste in your eyes when you read a line like that. All right, that's not like Keatsian. But if you're feeling how Keatsian that is, the touch of scent, um, you're getting a sense of... Um, that synesthesia in Keats, which always comes together, um, always gels or resolves as a kind of intense richness. So there are trees of every kind, of every clime, um, and there's the noise of fountains, and there's the scent of roses. Turning around, I saw an arbor with a drooping roof. Hang on to that um, because it's so like the opening of two Autumn*. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, when um, close bosom friend of the maturing sun, conspiring with him, how to load and bless the vines that round the thatch eaves run. That word "load," which is such a Keatsian word, so autumn is the friend of the maturing sun, loading and blessing the vines of um, that are going around the house. Um, with fruit, with, um, with um, all the things that um, come to fruition at harvest time in autumn. So again, there's all this heaviness, this fullness that you get in Keats. And look what happens. Turning around, I saw an arbor with a drooping roof of trellis vines and bells and larger blooms, like floral sensors swinging light in air. So he sees something which is like incense before it's read the doorway on a mound of before it's read the doorway on a mound of moss was spread a feast of summer fruits which nearer seemed seemed refuse of a meal by angel tasted or our mother Eve so what angel is he thinking of readers of Paradise Lost yeah Raphael yeah Raphael who comes down to earth to tell Adam And Eve about the war in heaven and is fed earthly food Um, and they're a little surprised that he can eat it but he says no that um, angels can um, can eat human food and turn it into (coughs) heavenly food we know angels can eat human food also from the book of Genesis when Abraham serves the angels who come to tell him about the birth of Isaac human food so um, he sees not them eating, but the refuse of a meal, what's left over, of a meal by angel taste or our mother eat. For empty shells were scattered on the grass, and by shells there he means from nuts. Um, for empty shells were scattered on the grass, and grape stalks, but half bare and remnants more, sweet smelling, whose pure sweet smelling, whose pure kinds I could not know. Still was more plenty than the fabled horn thrice emptied could pour forth at banqueting for proserpine, return to her fields where the white heifers low. And appetite more yearning than on earth I ever felt growing within. I ate deliciously. So he's got a yearning appetite. Remember the music, yearning, like a god in pain. It's, a, again, such a Keatsian word. Um, the sense of, of both emptiness and richness in a word like yearn. Um, that is, you want something that you don't have, but the wanting itself is a rich experience, um, the experience of yearning. Again, a typically Keatsian word. Um, and there's the food. I ate deliciously, and after not long thirsted, <clears throat> for thereby stood a cool vessel of transparent juice sipped by the wandered bee, the which I took in pledging all the mortals of the world and all the dead whose names are in our lips drank. That full draft is parent of my theme. So he drinks some kind of druggy drink that's there. Um, you will see something similar happen in The Triumph of Life. The idea of drinking something and then having a vision or drinking something and going through a transformation, you obviously know it from Alice in Wonderland. You might know it from The Odyssey. Um, In the Odyssey, Circe gives mortals the drink of Nepenthe to drink, and they turn into animals. That idea of Nepenthe as being a drink that will transform you gets picked up by Milton again in Comus, where Comus, the son of Circe, offers Nepenthe to the lady and to all those whom he would entrap. And as you'll see, Nepenthe is the drink in the triumph of life. Yeah? does not mention it in the Raven? Yes, he does. <laughs> what is it? That drink of bright Nepenthe? Yeah. Um, yeah, everyone is interested in what Nepenthe is and what it can do to and for you. So he drinks. That full draft is parent of my theme. Again, now think of the ode on melancholy. Um... Or the O2 and Nightingale, um, a drowsy numbness. A drowsy um, numbness pains my spirit, as though of hemlock I had drunk. He says, um, he drinks that full draught is parent of my theme, and again, he's now dreaming in something like the way that who wakes up to. How's that for a question? Who wakes up to? Um, The kind of feast which he's sinking to in dreams, yeah. Madeline in the Eve of St. Agnes. Again, all this richness, all this plenty. So no Asian poppy nor elixir fine of the soon-fading jealous caliphate, no poison gendered in close monkish cell to thin the scarlet conclave of old men could so have wrapped unwilling life away. So what's the scarlet conclave of old men? not the papacy but the College of Cardinals the cardinals who are choosing a pope so this is a um, very um, um, Borgia-esque um, uh, idea of um, cardinals conspiring to kill each other um, because in their attempts to become pope um, so Nothing that they might have drunk um, could so have wrapped unwilling life away. Among the fragrant husks and berries crushed upon the grass, I struggled hard against the domineering potion, but in vain the cloudy swoon came on and down. I sunk like a sillinus on an antique vase. So notice that it's like all the odes are... are are making a kind of, the the ideas, the images of all the odes are making an appearance here. He's written the odes, all but the Ode to Autumn. He's written the odes between when he stopped writing Hyperion and when he picks it up in the fall of Hyperion. And we're getting the same imagery, the same ideas that we get, I'll just say quickly, in the Ode to Autumn, in the Ode on Melancholy, in the Ode to a Nightingale, in the Ode on a Grecian urn. and so, in his sleep, he drinks and falls into a swoon after he drinks. How long I slumbered, tis a chance to guess when sense of life returned. I started up as if with wings. But the fair trees were gone. The mossy mound and arbor were no more. I looked around upon the carved sides of an old sanctuary with roof august, builded so high, it seemed that filmed clouds might spread beneath. As were the stars of heaven, so old the place was, I remembered none the like upon the earth. What I had seen of great cathedrals, buttressed walls, rent towers, the superannuation of sunk realms. One of the few poems that uses the word superannuation in it. Um, but he's here talking about Atlantis, the superannuation of sunk realms. Or nature's rocks toiled hard in waves and winds, seemed but the falture of decrepit things to that eternal domed monument, making us think God. Yes, upon the marble at my feet there lay store of strange vessels and large draperies, whose needs had been of di- which needs had been of dyed asbestos wove, or in that place the moth could not corrupt so white the linen, so in some distinct ran imageries from a somber loom, all in a mingled heap, confused There lay, robes, golden tongs, censer and chafing dish, girdles and chains and holy jewelries, turning from these with all, once more I raised my eyes to fathom the space every way, the embossed roof, the silent massy range of columns north and south, ending in mist of nothing. So, again, it's a game of thronesy kind of um, building. An amazing Um, visual, image, columns going on and on to end in mist. Then to eastward where black gates were shut against the sunrise evermore, then to the west I looked and saw far off an image, huge a feature as a cloud, at level of whose feet an altar slept to be approached on either side by steps, and marble balustrade and patient travail to count with toil the innumerable (coughs) degrees. Um, Here you should be thinking of Spencer if you know Spencer. Um, especially the temple of Isis. Towards the altar, sober-paced I went, repressing haste as too unholy there, and coming nearer saw beside the shrine one ministering. So here is another person. He's not alone for the first time. He'd been in a place where everything was abandoned. He drank, he arose from his swoon, and he was in a new place, but still an empty one. Closed to the day, gigantic but empty. But then he sees an altar and a stairway, and one ministering there, and there arose a flame. When, in mid May, the sickening east wind shifts sudden to the south, the small warm rain melts out the frozen incense from all flowers. Again, notice the synesthesia there. The small warm rain melts out the frozen incense from all flowers. So the rain is warm, okay. It melts odors from flowers and fills the air with so much pleasant health that even the dying man forgets his shroud. Even so, that lofty sacrificial fire sending forth Mayan incense spread around forgetfulness of everything but bliss and clouded all the altar with soft smoke from whose white fragrant curtains thus I heard language pronounce. So now he hears what Monita will say to him. If thou canst not ascend these steps, die on that marble where thou art. Thy flesh near cousin to the common dust will parch for lack of nutriment. Thy bones will wither in a few years and vanish so that not the quickest eye could find a grain of what thou now art on that pavement cold. The sands of thy short life are spent this hour, and no hand in the universe can turn thy hourglass. If these gummed leaves be burnt, ere thou canst mount up these immortal steps." So he's on the steps, and suddenly he's trapped. And he only has an hour, at most, to get off the steps, or he will die. I heard I looked. Two senses both at once, what a surprise. So fine, so subtle, felt the tyranny of that fierce threat and the hard task proposed. Prodigious seemed the toil, the leaves were yet burning, when suddenly a palsied chill struck from the paved level up my limbs and was sending quick to put cold grasp upon those streams that pulsed beside the throat. So he can't move. He feels cold all over. The description here may very well come from Socrates' description of drinking hemlock um, in um, the, the Phaedo where he dies. Um, he drinks hemlock, and um, he feels coldness and paralysis starting at his feet and coming up his body as he tells his disciples as they're discussing the last philosophical discussion they'll ever have. Um, And he describes what the hemlock is doing to him. And Keats may be picking that up. Um, I shrieked, and the sharp anguish of my shriek stung my own ears. I strove hard to escape the numbness, strove to gain the lowest step. Slow, heavy, deadly was my pace. The cold grew stifling, suffocating at the heart. And when I clasped my hands, I felt them not. One minute before death, my icid foot touched the lowest stair. And as it touched, life seemed to pour in at the toes. I mounted up as once fair angels on a ladder flew from the green turf to heaven. Holy power, cried I, approaching near the hornet shrine. What am I that I should so be saved from death? What am I that another death come not to choke my utterance sacrilegious here? then said the veiled shadow, thou hast felt what tis to die and live again before thy fated hour, that thou hast power to do so is thy own safety, thou hast dated on thy doom. And then we're going to get his vision of what we see in Hyperion. Um, I mean, the frame goes on for a while, so this is, uh, well, no, actually, um, I suppose we should, we should go more be- we should go a little bit farther um because um let's just go to where um um and just we do have to get to the odes, so, um, yeah, I think, I think we pretty much have to stop here. It's worth noticing that she calls him a fever of himself. That's something that, um, we that, um, <coughs> Keats grabs from, um, the Hyperion poems. Um, thou art a dreaming thing, a fever of thyself, um, thyself. Think of the earth, what bliss, even in hope, is there for thee, what haven. Um, And he also watches hour after hour as nothing happens in the shady silence of um, the veil. And um, all of that slowing down into stillness, into almost powerlessness, into almost an inability to move. That paralysis is something that you see all over in Keats. His great fear is the fear of, um, a fear imaged in paralysis. And it's that fear is the flip side of. Um, his love of richness and of synesthesia. It's as though things become so rich that they become, that you can't move through them again. They become thick as honey or thick as molasses. Um, Everything that gets loaded into Keats's world. Again, that word load is one to notice how often he uses. Load every rift with ore says in his letter to Shelley. um, The sun and autumn conspire how to load and bless the vines that round the Thatchies run. Um, He bears the load of that eternal quietude he's about to say. um, That he watches what's happening with Saturn. Okay, go to um, line 373. Um... Here, Moneta has described Saturn, um, we get the beginning of the Hyperion poem, there's no stir of life, nothing is happening, where the dead leaf rested, there did it lay, nothing can wake Saturn on, um, and in comes Thea to try to wake him up and then says, but wherefore why? Um, line 371 Saturn sleep on while at thy feet I weep and then Keats goes on um, as when upon a transit summer night forest branch charmed by the earnest stars dream and so dream all night without a noise save from one gradual solitary gust swelling upon the silence dying off as if the ebbing air had but one wave so came these words and went and while in tears she pressed her fair large forehead to the earth just where her fallen hair might spread in curls a soft and silken mat for Saturn's feet. long, long, these two were postured motionless, like sculpture builded up upon the grave of their own power. So sculpture built on the grave of their own power. A long, awful time, I looked on uh, excuse me, I looked upon them still they were the same the frozen god still bending to the earth and the sad goddess weeping at his feet Monita, silent so now Monita is there which she wasn't in hyperion and he's there without stay or prop but my own weak mortality i bore the load of this eternal quietude so all he has to hold him up is his own weak mortality the vision of the titans motionless gigantic figures of an elder time now motionless and he alone without say or prop of my own weak mortality I bore the load of this eternal quietude the unchanging gloom and the three fixed shapes, ponderous upon my senses, a whole moon, that is a whole month. For by my burning brain I measured sure her silver seasons shedded on the night, and every day, and ever day by day methought I grew more gaunt and ghostly. Oftentimes I prayed intense that death should take me from the veil and all its burdens, gasping with despair of change hour after hour I cursed myself so he, they are still but he is experiencing this the load and burden of this stillness so just to put this briefly and then we'll go to the odes Um, you know if you want to write on this if you're not memorizing if you want to write on Hyperion or the fall of Hyperion go for it these are poems worth thinking through and going through carefully. Um, But what's combining here, in a way that we saw a little bit in that poem, as Hermes once the poem, um, the sonnet in which Heats goes to the second circle of of Dante's hell and sees Paolo and Francesca, is that Heats, the viewer, the person who sees these things, is joining in with them but because he's only seeing because he can only see because Keats is the seer the only way to join in with the things he sees is by seeing that they too are reduced to a kind of seeing that they too that he can't join them but they can't join each other either that he is watching them motionless as he himself is motionless now just to tell you Monita is an avatar or another name for Mnemosyne who you recall is one of the titans who is free to go on earth and is the mother of the muses so <coughs> the figure of Mnemosyne who inspires Apollo in Hyperion and gives him his knowledge of everything that he knows in the fall of Hyperion becomes Moneta who gives Keats the knowledge that he writes about here. Um, So so that idea of the young Apollo, the young poet, free and moving, and yet becoming weighed down with the things that he's going to describe in his poetry. Um, Here you get the mapping from Hyperion to the fall of Hyperion. You get explicitly the mapping of Apollo into Keats. And the idea might be something like this, that if you're a poet, especially if you're Keats, then there are two opposite vectors in your relation to the world. One is to feel everything Not to be, to quote Henry James, to be someone on whom nothing is lost. To feel and see and sense and experience everything. But to feel and see and sense and experience everything is to be weighed down with the sheer lushness of experience. So the other vector is to free yourself from that by writing poetry, by not now being the perceiver of the richness of the world, but being someone who, through his or her language, can somehow find a way to move through that world, to turn it into pure vision, rather than having pure vision turn into pure stasis, to be able to move through it. So to go to the poem that Tony wanted us to look at, and this, this can be a, a model for what's going on in Keats. Um, look at the poem called When I Have Fears, the song called When I Have Fears That I May Cease to Be. Um, as a key poem in Keats's own view of the purpose of poetry and the limits of what poetry can do for you. So, does someone want to read it? It's only a sonnet. Okay. One, three, one. Is that you volunteering? Yes, good. <laughs> it's on page 301. When I see ceas- that I may cease to be. Before my pen has cleaned my teeming brain, before high-piled books and character hold like rich garners the full-ripened grain, when I behold upon the night starry face huge cloudy symbols of a high romance, and think that I may never live, live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance, and when I feel, fair creature of an hour, that I shall never look upon thee more, never have relished in the fairy power of unreflecting love. Then, on the shore of the wide world, I stand alone, and think till love and fame to nothingness do sink. Thank you. That's great. So, what does, what's his fear? What does it mean to cease to be? Die. Yeah. Um, No longer exist. Um, This is a very direct way of describing death, not as um, leading to some afterlife, but you live and then you stop being. And he doesn't fear death. He fears early death. When I have fears that I may cease to be before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain. What does the word glean mean there? Take everything. It does mean taking everything, um, but it, ha- it it's a more specific word than that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, you mean uh, what I glean from what you've said is, yeah. yeah. It's actually a very explicit metaphor. Um, Sorry? I don't know why I, I thought about that. I mean, like... like something oh, you're like, thinking of glean? Yeah, I was thinking of yeah, glean. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like glean, but isn't. Mm-hmm. We, we're playing kind of charades. Um, in To Autumn, he talks about how sometimes autumn, like a gleaner doth keep its head straight, um, watching the last ooings hour by hour. Um, do people know the story of Ruth and Naomi? Um, it comes up in The Odin Nightingale. Um, <coughs> Ruth is Naomi's daughter-in-law. This is the book of Ruth. Um, Ruth is Naomi's daughter-in-law, and um, <coughs> She is after her husband dies. She is given permission to what's called glean the fields owned by I think it's Boaz by a rich man. Um, and there's a great movie um, by Agnès Varda called The Gleaners and Me. In French, it's really The Gleaners as a plural and the gleaner, but it's a feminine singular. So she's talking about herself. What In France, there are laws protecting gleaning. What gleaning is, is that according to the Bible and then simply by um, virtue of mechanical um, um, harvesting, when you harvest a field, you don't get it all. It's inefficient to get it all. So you you don't get it all. And um, gleaners are people who are allowed to pick up what's left over in the harvest. So so the field is cut down, all the corn or all the wheat um, is, is mowed and picked up and put into stacks, but there's always a little bit that's left over. And gleaners are just people, generally poor people, the people who are allowed into the fields to take what's left over. And according to the Old Testament, um, it is breaking the law, the Hebraic law, to be so selfish, if you're the owner of the field, as to make sure to get everything. The idea is you basically got it. There are a few leftovers left. You leave that for the poor. So gleaners are those who take what's left. So the idea that you're, that you're only getting a little bit of it, um, that you're getting it quickly, that you're not getting the whole thing. Um, <coughs> The reason we have that idea in the word glean is because the gleaners only get what's left over. Um, That's the general view. But what Keats is meaning here is something a little bit different, which is, I want to get everything that's in my brain. I have fears that I may cease to be before I get it all out. So I may get a lot of it out by writing Hyperion or The Fall of Hyperion, but there's so much in my brain. I want it all. I want to glean everything Not only get the main harvest, but get every little bit before I die. So that's what he's meaning by the word glean here. Um, yeah? So this is really random, but we have a food bank at home that's called Gleaners, and yeah. makes so much sense now. Okay, good. Yeah. No, it does make sense. And as I say, it's, it is a French law, and um, some people tried to change the law, and there was, there was a huge debate about it, um, especially in vineyards. That is, people would collect the grapes from... Um, from very fancy vineyards, the grapes that hadn't been harvested. Um, And it was an issue, but I think in the end they didn't change the law, which is good. Um, So when I have fears that I may cease to be before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain, so before I've gotten all my thoughts out into writing is what that means, before my pen, by writing out my thoughts, gleans everything from my teeming brain, my brain full of life before high pilot books in charactery hold, like Rich Garner's, the full ripened grain. So there's that idea of ripeness again. And he wants books like books of ancient or medieval romance um, piled high with all his thoughts, with all his poetry, with all his writing and he fears that he may not be able to write everything he wants to write. When I behold upon the night's starred face, huge cloudy symbols of a high romance. So he looks at the night sky, and for him, there it's, it's inspiring. They're symbols of a romance he might write. Just looking at the stars fills him, inspires him, fills him with inspiration. And think, when I when I look at all those things and think that I may never live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance. So to trace their shadows would mean to write down the thoughts, the sense of romance, the inspiration to romance that looking at the stars gives him. And what would the magic hand of chance mean? That's an amazing line. Um, it may be so amazing you don't want to think about it. Or you may try to figure out what it means. The magic hand of chance. Comes from inspiration. Comes from inspiration, but why chance? You mean that the inspiration is chancy. But he's writing with his own hand. Remember, um, he likes, or he one of the things that he does a lot is to think about his own hand. Um, there is, whether this... Um, is the dream of a poet of a poet or a fanatic will be known when this warm scribe, my hand is in the grave? Did anyone read the poem you 're supposed to read this living hand um, so there again, this living hand now warm and capable of earnest grasping he says he 's writing with the hand that 's writing those lines the The amazing irony. Uh, That Let's just um, put a parenthesis in this parenthesis um, and look at that poem, This Living Hand, Um, possibly the last poem he ever wrote. This living hand, now warm and capable of earnest grasping, would, if it were cold and in the icy silence of the tomb, So haunt thy days and chill thy dreaming nights that thou wouldst wish thine own heart dry of blood. So in my veins, red, life might stream again and thou be conscience calmed. See, here it is. I hold it towards you. So, is he really holding it towards you? No, he's dead. He knows you'll read this when he's dead. So how is he holding it towards you? In his living hand is the pen with which he's writing those words. So that his hand is living is proved by the fact that it's writing the words, this living hand. This living hand with a hint of handwriting. This living hand with which I write. Now, warm and capable of earnest grasping because he's grasping the pen would, if it were cold, haunt you, as it should now, because it is cold. If you're reading it, he's dead. So he's writing this with his living hand. But now this warm scribe, my hand, is in the grave. You're reading a poem written I mean, here, more than anything, you should think of the fact that Keats is asking you was sitting at his desk with a pen in his hand, thinking about the warm hand holding that pen, writing these words, and addressing you in ways that poets almost never address you as real people. When a poet says you, you think, yeah, the audience for the poem. But you don't think, oh, me. When Shakespeare says, that time of year thou mayest in me behold, when yellow leaves are none or few do hang upon those boughs that shake against the cold, you don't think, oh yeah, he's talking to me and I can behold that time of year. We're always reading over the shoulder of you in poems. When a poem addresses you, we read over the shoulder of that person. That's a natural way of reading. We don't even think about it. We just don't think the poem is addressing me It's not. The poem is addressing someone Byron or Shelley or Keats knew. Or if if they didn't know them, someone from their world, from their time, from their milieu. Or if not someone from their world, from their time, their milieu, then someone who is expert in poetry, who's read what they've read, who knows what they know, who's a version of the kind of person they think of as a reader. We sometimes call this, we narrative theorists sometimes call this the narratee the implied reader, but not you, the real person. You don't like the word narrative? Yeah, it's okay. Um, Not you, the real person. But here Keats is saying, I am not now simply the person who wrote this poem. And you could say, oh yeah, the writer of this poem, the narrator, the speaker of the poem. I'm actually sitting here, holding a pen, noticing that my hand is alive. It's warm. It's able to hold the pen. And I am writing to those who will read these words when I am dead because I will die. And so that you is much more you in 2013 than almost any you in any poem is. You know, it should, if you're reading this right, it should give you a shiver. And by you, I mean you. It should give you a shiver. It's not Fanny Braun he's writing this to. It's not an enemy. It's not a friend. It's you. So, in the same way, he's talking about how he's going to use, glean his brain with his pen. How he may never live to trace the shadows of these things with the magic hand, again, of chance. So what is the magic hand of chance? It's his hand. He's the one tracing the shadows. It's as though the stars are up in the sky and they're symbols, and the stars are casting their shadows, as though their light is their shadow, onto a page that he's tracing, which is what writing the poem would be. But what would the magic hand of chance be for a poet? Yeah. Sudden inspiration? What do you notice about the sound magic hand of chance? If you were asked what poetic um, device, I don't mean metaphor. I mean on a much more basic level of sound, what poetic device are we finding in that phrase magic hand? You remember mm-hmm. it, but the repetition of sound. Like that yeah, as- yeah, assonance. Mm-hmm. See, it's magic hand of chance. Assonance, assonance. Yeah. So the magic hand of chance is an example of assonance. You can always remember that. <laughs> It'll be terrible if that's the couplet you remember from this class, but you know, <laughs> um, assonance. What is assonance, definition? Repetition of vowel sounds. Repetition of vowel sounds. Um, Mm -hmm. Rhyme is a special case of assonance. That is when two words rhyme, they are therefore um, assonant with each other. Um, Chance and dance, repetition of sounds, eh or eh, eh. Um, But they rhyme because of the consonants also. The magic hand of chance is something like um, the possibilities that the pure randomness of language offers to a poet. The fact that words rhyme is something that to a poet will feel like a magical chance. How amazing it is that these two words rhyme so that I can say this thing. Using those two words as my rhyme words, what poets do? Remember what Byron said about rhyming. Some poets write blank verse. I'm fond of rhyme. Good workmen never quarrel with their tools. Um, Milton didn't like rhyme. We talked about this because he said it caused people to say things otherwise and usually worse than they would uh, than they might say it. Because if you're trying to rhyme, you're led into various <coughs> byways that have nothing to do with what you're trying to say. You want to talk about how much you love someone, and you find that you have to talk about doves or gloves, or heaven above. And, you know, that's why why would that be? Um, But for another kind of poet, rhyme is enabling because it gives you all sorts of connections by its sheer randomness. Words rhyme randomly. Good lines, good poems, rhyme words that are not related to each other. Um, It's um, it's an important feature of good poetry. We've talked about this, but I'm going to say it again. It's an important feature of good poetry that the words that rhyme are rhyming not because they're something like the the same part of speech. That is, you don't rhyme fleeting with going, because they both end with ing. That's not a rhyme. It doesn't count as a rhyme, because that's just um, a grammatical suffix. That's called homoteluton, same ending. Rather than rhyme, rhymes, the best rhymes, are rhymes where the word's connection is only sound and not some connection in meaning. It's only the sound that matters to the rhyme. And therefore, it's the poet who is given two words that sound alike but have no other connection between them. And the poet sees that as an opportunity to find a connection, to make a connection. So that's the magic hand of chance. It's by chance the two words rhyme. By chance, the chance rhymes with romance by chance that brain rhymes with grain, that trace rhymes with face. All of that is just chance. But the magic hand of chance guides the poet's hand. The poet can trace that magical good fortune that makes these two words rhyme in such a way. But now he's worried that he may never live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance. And when I feel, fair creature of an hour, that I shall never look upon thee more. So he sees someone, and his heart stops. And he thinks, but I may never see you again. It's both a poem and a woman. Not a particular woman, just the fair creature of an hour. You know, the um what is it in Craigslist? Misconnections? It's a miscon it's a misconnection type of moment. When I think that there you were. And wow, but now I'll never see you again. And when I feel fair creature of an hour, that I shall never look upon thee more, never have relish in the fairy power there's that word he loves so much, fairy. Never have relish in the fairy power of un. Reflecting love, that is just in the same way that rhymes come together randomly and yet it becomes magical, so do people. The fairy power, the magic hand of chance, the fairy power of unreflecting love. And when I think that that will never happen, I'll never see you again. We won't rhyme, although for a moment it looked like we would when all of this occurs to me, when I have fears that I may cease to be. Sorry for that, Ron. Then on the shore of the wide world I stand alone and think till love and fame to nothingness (laughs) do sink. So everything he wanted which he summarizes here in the words love and fame, they sink to nothingness. Then he can simply think, not feel, but think. And that for him is freedom. All the richness that he's experienced up through line 10 is wonderful but oppressive. He doesn't call it oppressive in this poem, but it's That very richness is everything that scares him about death because he'll never come, he'll never be able to get it all. Never write everything he wants to write. Never experience the love he wants to experience. And what he thinks about now is non-being. But then he goes to the shore of the world. He looks out beyond the world, not the world of all this richness, but of the emptiness outside of it, as out on the ocean. And then all these desires, all these desires which are the fruit of this richness, sink to nothing. And that, for him, is freedom. That's how to feel the end of this sonnet, is an experience of being free of all that lushness and lusciousness and richness and that's an amazing kind of freedom it's very much like what's going on in As Hermes Wants that is he's full of Greek mythology he's thinking of Hermes, he's thinking of Zeus he's thinking of Mount Ida but then he goes to the second circle of hell instead where he's away from all the wondrous beauties of life Keats felt that beauty more intensely, more strongly than anyone, and dr- was drowning in it. And his great poems are poems which go through it, get to the other side, find freedom in a much sparer world. Keats's Keats is, is a kind of achieved spareness a way to look at that is, let's look at the poem To Autumn. Um, what we'll do in our um, extra day is we'll do some more odes of Keats's. Um, but look at the poem To Autumn. It begins, Season of Mist and Mellow Fruitfulness, the last of his great odes. Um, he described it in a letter um, to a friend of his, in which he said that um, He's really that it's a really wonderful, beautiful autumn. It's it's September of eighteen nineteen, um, and he says a wonderful, beautiful autumn. And he says he saw a stubble field. That is a field that had already been um, reaped. So there was only the stubble of grain left. And he says um, somehow a stubble field looks warm to me. There's that word he loves also, warm. Somehow a stubble field looks warm to me, the way some pictures look warm. And he says that he much prefers autumn. He says, I, better than the chilly green of spring. So spring is chilly, the chilly green of spring. Green to him is a chilly color, but the burnished brownness of autumn, that for him is warm. And he says, I felt this so much that I wrote a poem on it, and he writes, season addressing autumn, season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun conspiring with him, <coughs> had to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run to bend with apples the mossed cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core to swell the gird and plump the hazel shells, there's the shells again that we saw in the um, beginning of the fall of period, and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees until they think Warm days will never cease, for summer has o'erbrimmed their clammy cells. So, how would you diagram that sentence? Remember how you diagram subject, verb? What's the subject? So, the stands for one of two them. It's one sentence. The whole stanza is a single sentence. So, what's the subject? Yes. Yeah, season of mists. Um, do you guys know Neil Gaiman, the Sandman series? No, do you know Neil Gaiman? Yeah. So you know that he made that he was famous for graphic novels called the Sandman. That's what made him famous. They're amazing. Um, do you know them? I've never read them, but I know them. Okay, one of them is called Season of Mists. Um, yeah, they they are amazing. You should read them. Do you know Neil Gaiman? Him. All right. How many people have read him? You read What have you read? It's graveyard. Uh-huh. Do you guys read Terry Pratchett? Oh, you have so much good reading ahead of you. That's great. OK. They wrote a novel together. that's why I bring one. Uh, Terry Pratchett is totally wonderful. Um, really, totally wonderful. Read Night Watch. Next vacation you have, read Night Watch. You will totally love it, I guarantee it. If you don't love it, I'll give you a C in the class. That's how much I guarantee. <laughs> <laughs> Worth a try. Um, okay, so the subject is the season of mists. That is autumn. What's the verb? What's the predicate? No, that's a that's a um, gerundive. Yeah. Bless. Um, no, it's have a load and bless. That's all in a subordinate clause, or not even a subordinate clause, in a subordinate phrase. All of these are adjectives, right? Season. Okay, fine, that's the subject. What season? Oh, the season of mist and mellow fruitfulness. Um, another way of describing you is to say that you are the close bosom friend of the maturing son who is conspiring with him how to load and bless with fruit the vines that round the thatch eaves run and also conspiring with him how to bend with apples the moss cottage trees and fill all fruit with ripeness to the core, conspiring with him as well on how to swell the gourd and plump the hazel shells with a sweet kernel, and also conspiring with him on how to set budding more and still more later flowers for the bees until they think warm days will never cease for summer as o'er brimmed their clammy cells. Yes, oh season, Period. Remember, we saw something like this in Mont Blanc. Um, Thus, thou ravine of Arve, deep dark ravine, and we go on for eleven lines before we get to the predicate. Thou dost lie. The two of you who wrote on Mont Blanc, you remember that part, right? Thus, thou ravine of Arve, dark deep ravine, thou many-voiced, many-colored veil within, etc., etc., etc. Thou dost lie. Same here, season of mist and mellow fruitfulness, what? Generally, when you say, oh, wild west wind, to use, to talk about Shelley's autumnal poem, what's the predicate? When you say, oh, X, the predicate is almost always going to be in an imperative. Oh, God, help me. Oh, wild west wind. Do you remember the predicate, Maria, for that? What that the imperative is? Hear. Hear me. That might be the standard predicate of an O poem. An ode is a poem which begins with O. That's essentially what an ode means. It's not really what it means. but um, So, O wild west wind, hear, O hear. That's what you get in the first three stanzas of Shelley's Ode to the West Wind. Um, oh, self-born mockers of man's enterprise. What's that from? For a quick bump of half grade, three two one zero. Oh well. Yates, Among School Children. Oh, self-born mockers of man's enterprise. Answer my question, says Yates. But here we get Equivalent to an O, that is an implied O season of mists. And we never get the imperative. We just get to a period for summers or brim their clammy cells. You may not notice that because so many things are piled up in apposition to season of mists. So much description, it just piles and piles and piles. And you may forget that you're waiting for the imperative. But here it is in miniature: season of mist and mellow fruitfulness. Period. The rest of it is only in a set in a series of adjectival phrases for autumn. Do you see that that there's that the other shoe never falls? That's paralysis. That's over richness. He can't get to the end of the sentence. He goes on for eleven lines, and it's. All loading, to use his own word, loading and blessing this stanza with gorgeous, rich, lush descriptions of the fullness, the plumpness, to use another one of his words, plumping the hazel shells with a sweet kernel. It's all plumped out. There are more and still more images in this stanza until you think those warm images will never cease because the lines are being o'erbrimmed with richness. And we never get the, and then. Why are you addressing autumn? So it's as though the stanza is describing itself. Same with the second stanza, although there is a sentence there. Who hath not seen thee oft amid thy storm? Sometimes, whoever seeks abroad may find these sitting careless on a granary floor. Again, think of um, when I have fears, fears that I may cease to be. Autumn watches, the end of stanza two, watches the last oozings hour by hour. And then the question where are the songs of spring? I, where are they? And here he finally frees himself. Into an atmosphere of spareness And that's what I wanted to draw your attention to Where are the songs of spring? Ay, where are they? Think not of them, thou hast thy music too While barred clouds bloom the soft dying day And touch the stubble plains with rosy hue Then in a wailful choir the small gnats mourn Among the river sallows borne aloft Feel how much airier this is now How much less rich it is or sinking as the light wind lives or dies, and full-grown lambs loud bleat from hilly bourne. They're far away. Hedge crickets sing. These are little things far away. We're no longer this overwhelmingly rich atmosphere. And now, with treble soft, the red breast whistles from a garden croft, and the <coughs> gathering swallows twitter in the skies. So what's happened in the poem, as in When I Have Fears That I May Cease to Be, is that he's freed himself from the lushness of his own imagination. Autumn has oppressed and overwhelmed him as a figure, as an allegory. But now he just looks at a few gnats and some swallows twittering far away. And that, for him, is kind of what he does at the beginning of the fall of Hyperion, which is to break away from the load of eternal silence and eternal pressure and eternal lushness which is suffocating him. For him, freedom is getting beyond, through and beyond, the richness of his own imagination, just as Madeline and Porphyro go out into the storm, leave all the wealth and warmth of the castle <coughs> and go out into the storm. That, for Keats' a success, is escaping the lushness of his own imagination. Okay, for Friday, Adnaus, Leinford, and the Bay of Ricci. See ya then.